Thank you, Heidi, Miss Nancy. Appreciate that very much. Turn in your hymn books. Nope. Turn in your Bibles. I'm just, I'm just so used to leading singing, you know. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter number one. Ecclesiastes chapter one. Ecclesiastes can be a little hard to find, but if you open up your Bible right in the middle, you'll hit Psalms or Proverbs, and it's the next one right after Proverbs. Um, so not too hard to find there. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You may have witnessed this following occurrence recently um, of a child opening up a gift, and they're super excited about this gift that they've gotten for Christmas, and they're enthralled with it, they're playing with it, they're super excited. And then two days later, they forget about it, and they never touch it again. Um, That is kind of like what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, We're going to be going at it from a Christmas perspective, but I want to talk to you about vanity, about vanity. What exactly is vanity? We're going to be looking at that, how it applies to Christmas, how it applies to our lives, and how it applies to even our new year when we're looking forward to... uh, maybe some resolutions that we've made or looking just forward to a fresh new year, what God has planned for us. Um, Maybe somebody that you know has gotten a large Christmas bonus or they won the lottery or something like that. And then they're, they're super excited about it for a little while. And then all of a sudden they realize that they've just wasted it all. They've, they've spent it on something that they shouldn't have. And they end up honestly worse than when they started with. That is the idea of vanity. That emptiness that comes with the things that we think are so exciting, the things that we think are so great. But in reality, it is emptiness. And that's what we're looking at this morning, vanity. And we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And let's go ahead and start reading there in uh, those first few verses of chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll jump into this passage. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the wisdom of Solomon in penning these words. Lord, what a powerful powerful narrative that he gives us here of his own life and the things that you taught him through his life, Lord. I I just pray that you would open up our hearts this time, that we might be receptive to what you have to teach us. And Lord, I just pray that we would allow our hearts to be affected by your word this morning. Pray for your power and your spirit to be upon this service. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, we're going to look at the preacher of wisdom. Point number one, the preacher of wisdom. Um, You'll see there it says, uh, verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Um, Ecclesiastes is a long word. Um, Many people don't know exactly what Ecclesiastes means, but um, if you you kind of boil it down to the root meaning of Ecclesiastes, it means a called out assembly or one who calls out an assembly. And that's why it starts by saying the words of the preacher, somebody who calls an assembly together, somebody who is uh, uh, preaching to a group of people, something like that. Uh, So this is Solomon, the son of David. He 
is the preacher. It says the words of the preacher. You wonder who's the preacher? Well, it is Solomon. He's the one that is calling together this assembly. He's calling to them together for a specific purpose so that he can teach them the wisdom that God has granted to him. Um, and so uh, if, we, if we read through here, actually, um, if we skip over to chapter 2 and verse 4, we'll see a little bit about this preacher, this one who had, had this great wisdom. Um, we're in chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, I made me great works. This is Solomon speaking. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water their with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men um, as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Talk about somebody who is difficult to buy for at Christmas. Solomon was very difficult to buy for. He had everything. You go through this list and you see that anything that he desired, he didn't keep from himself. He say, oh, I want a pool over here. Or I want trees over here. Or I want a new chariot and camels. This guy had everything. So there was, there was no use in figuring out what he wanted for Christmas because he had already had everything. And if he didn't have it, have it, he'd probably get it through taxes or something. Um, but he had everything. And this is, this is the perspective that we get through Ecclesiastes. Someone who's at the top of the ladder, you might say. Most people in this world would love to be at the place where Solomon was. In fact, that is their final goal in life. I want to be at the top. Um, Somebody who's climbing the corporate ladder, their desire is to be at the top, to be the one in charge, to be the one who has all the money, all the dough. Everything is going just right for them. And this is Solomon. He was at the top of his game. And yet we see he comes at this from a very different perspective than most people have. Most people don't see life from this perspective. Um, That brings us to our second point, though, the emptiness of life. The emptiness of life. You say Solomon had everything. How could he be empty? How could he possibly want anything more? How could he feel empty? Well, let's look there. We're in chapter 2, and we're picking up there in verse 11. This is right after he has exclaimed over all these things that he has. Verse 11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. Skip over, uh, actually go back there to chapter 1 of verse 2. This explains it even further. He says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Look at verse 3. It says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, another generation cometh, but the earth standeth, uh, abideth forever. 
So in other words, he's saying that life is pretty much just a big cycle, okay? You've got, you've got somebody who lives his life, and he works all of his life to get this, uh, to get his money or to, to do his life goals, his life dreams. And then he has children, and maybe he passes down a few things to his children, and then they kind of repeat the cycle. And, and Solomon says, what profit is there? in all of this. It, life is just one big cycle. What, if we are here to live for our own goals, our own dreams, our own ambitions, and our own money, then there's absolutely nothing in this life that's worth living for. This life is completely empty. Um, maybe you have a favorite Christmas tradition. Um, I know when, uh, when I was little, we would have Christmas in Chicago. My mom's family was from the Chicago area. And so the day of Christmas, sometimes the day after Christmas, we would go downtown Chicago and we would see the sights down there. Not a whole lot to see. But there are a few things that we enjoyed seeing when we were down there. And uh, one of those was the big Macy store. I'm not sure if it's still open there. Um, There's a big store, a uh, big Macy store there. And in that store, there were all these escalators. There were probably, I don't know, when I was little, it seemed like there were 15, 20 stories of escalators. It probably wasn't that much. Um, but there were a lot of escalators that crisscrossed back and forth. And I remember absolutely loving that because we would go there every Christmas. We would be able to see that. We would do some window shopping around the area and stuff. Um, but thinking of those escalators, you know, you ride up to the top and you get all the way to the top story. And then you ride all the way back down. I had so much fun. And you get down and you're in the exact same place where you started. You didn't, move, you, didn't, you didn't accomplish one single thing. All of that was just getting you back to the exact same spot. And that's often our lives. That's often the lives of people. You know, maybe you have a, a Christmas tradition that you love and you enjoy. Um, usually our Christmas traditions don't really matter in the long run. Generally, they don't, uh, they don't, you're making memories and that's a great thing. You're enjoying time with family. That's a great thing. And I'm not, I'm not speaking against Christmas traditions this morning. Um, but if you, if you step back and think about the things that we do on a daily basis, many of those things are empty. Uh, they, they don't really count for eternity. And this is what Solomon is saying here, that many of the things that we do on a daily basis, they just don't count for eternity. In fact, they'll be lost. They'll be completely lost. Once we die, once we pass away, none of that will matter. The only things that will matter is what we did for eternity. So Solomon is being very clear here that even if you get to the top, even if you are number one, Life is still empty without God. Life is still just not right unless God is the center of our attention, the center of our focus. Number three, point number three, the conclusion of the matter. And this is where I really want to channel the focus of the message this morning, the conclusion of the matter. In order to get there, we're going to go all the way to the end of the book. And that's uh, chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And the last two verses there. If you read through the rest of the book, you'll see that Solomon is um, explaining just all of this emptiness. He, he, he keeps going through it, how empty his life is and how worthless the things that he has accomplished are. That they really didn't matter too much for eternity. Um, but Solomon had it right. 
he had, he had it pinpointed exactly right when he closed out his book here. In verse 13 of chapter 12, he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. It's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Oftentimes we make this life very complicated in the, in the things, you know, we, we see this big book here, the Bible, we see all the commandments that it, that it gives us. And sometimes we just think that the Christian life is so complicated. You know, we, you go to door to door talking to people about the gospel. Um, and many times those people will just think, oh, these Christians, they have to abide by all these rules and they have such a miserable life. They never get to do anything fun. And uh, their, their lives are so complicated, they have to do all of these things. And, and you know, that, that in and of itself, that, that complicated theology, you might say, really stems back. You, you, can, you can see that even back in Bible times, when the Pharisees, they would, they would um, figure out all of these complicated laws for themselves and how they would do this and this and this and this and this so that they could supposedly abide by the law. The Christian life is not complicated, though. There, there is nothing complicated about living for God. And that is shown time and time again through the Word. Um, there's one passage that says that uh, all of the law, the, all of the Bible, all the prophets, everything in the Bible hang or rest on one commandment. And you know that commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And so the Christian life is not complicated. He, he um, if, if you want to use the term dumbed down, he dumbed it down here to two very specific commandments here. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. First of all, we'll look at fearing God. What exactly does it mean to fear God? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. Keep your, keep your finger there in, in uh, Ecclesiastes. Turn over to Revelation chapter 14. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation is a great book. If you want to do a study on the glory of God and the power of God and, and fearing God, Revelation is a great book to read through. It just shows the awesomeness of our God in these passages. But I'm in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. We'll start in verse 6 there. It says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So there's, there's an angel, and he's flying in the midst of heaven. He has the gospel to preach um, to every nation, every kindred, every tongue. And this is his message. This is his good news. He says, saying with a loud voice in verse 7, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that hath made heaven and earth and the sea and the foundations of waters. He says to fear God and give glory to him. That's kind of a clue as to what exactly it means to fear God. 
In other words, we are to fear him and give him glory. That, that's one aspect of that. Fearing God is to give glory to him, is to give him the worship and the praise that he deserves. If you look at, at that word fear, it's um, actually the word that we get our word phobia from, phobos. Um, and so it's a literal fear of God. Just like you might have a child who fears getting coal in his stocking for Christmas. All right, there's a healthy, healthy fear of bad consequences happening for bad behavior. All right? And that's um, in a rough idea of what this is to fear the Lord. It, it, it's not a cowering in the corner afraid that God is going to do something to us. It is a healthy fear that helps us to live right. That's the kind of fear that we should have before God, realizing that God is powerful. This passage here in Revelation is speaking of God's um, judgment, of God's judgment on sin, God's judge on this judgment on this evil world, and that is that is where this context of fearing comes from. Our God is a just God. Our God has to punish sin. He, he can't just let sin go. Uh, with no consequences. He must punish sin. There is a consequence for sin. I'm thankful today that Jesus Christ took that consequence for sin, that he completely erased our debt, and that we no longer have to answer to a just and righteous God for our sins. And today, if you've never had a time in your life when you've accepted Jesus Christ to be your substitute for, uh, for your sins— then today's the day to do that. Just realizing that we have a God that needs to be feared. We have a true, righteous, just God. And that our sin distances us from God, that we don't deserve to be in heaven someday. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, I, because of my sin, all the bad things that I do, I deserve to go to hell. And, and to be eternally separated from Jesus Christ for all of eternity. But God loves us so much. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to be your substitute, to take that punishment for you. And no longer do we have to fear eternal punishment. No longer do we have to fear the wrath of God. But we have Jesus Christ as our substitute, that we can trust him to take away our sins. And I trust that if you've not done that yet, that you'll think about that today. That you'll think about what the Bible has to say about Jesus taking away your sins. And someone here would, be, would love to be able to show you this morning how you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven and that your sin account is clear before God. Those of us that are saved, we have that account completely settled. It is, uh, it is completely clear. There is no sin before us in God. But yet, at the same time, sin has consequences. And just because we have our account settled before God doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for our sin. And so this passage is making it so clear to fear God. In other words, I need to be living right. I need to be having the right kind of um, posture toward God and that I, I don't think I'm super great. I don't think I'm big stuff. I'm going to humble myself before God and realize that he is worthy of my fear. And, and in doing that, at that same time, that should cause us to want to live right. That should cause us to want to please God in all of our actions, all of our attitudes, because he's worthy of our fear. Um, 
So we have a healthy fear of, of God in that manner. That second area there in Ecclesiastes, we can turn back there, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse, uh, verse 13 says, fear God and keep his commandments. And you'll see how these are starting to tie into each other. In fact, I love how the Christian life interlocks. Um, my brain works that way. I, I enjoy seeing equations. This equals this, and, and this makes this happen, and all of that. And uh, I, that's why I love these passages here that just make it so simple, that fearing God brings you to a point where you want to please him, where you want to do his commandments. And when you do God's commandments, it's showing that you do truly fear him. Uh, and in fact, if you step back and think about the passage that we just mentioned a little while ago, to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, um, that translates into, into doing his commandments as well. You, 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 do a, you do a study of the word of God, it shows you that in order to love God, you have to keep his commandments. Um, and uh, it, it, all, it all interlocks here. It all makes sense because the Christian life is very simple. I need to have an attitude of loving my God so that I can fear him and so I can do his commandments. And uh, th- th- this, is, this is very simple um, to say to do God's commandments. But if you step back and think about it, to do all of God's commandments, to, uh, um, to, to not offend in one point, that almost sounds impossible. It's a, it's, it's a high calling. To do God's commandments is a very high calling. Yet that's what God expects of us. And again, it's not a complicated thing. It's simply day to day I am loving God as I should. I am fearing God. I'm filled with his spirit. And at that point, God gives us the ability to obey his commandments. He forgives us of our sins. He allows us to walk with him as we should. If we go to Micah 6.8, we won't turn there, uh, but Micah 6.8 is another passage that really explains this a little more fully. He says in Micah 6.8, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So again, he's taking all of the commandments of God and he's putting it in three commandments. And uh, the first one there is uh, to do justly. Okay, so do what's right. Obey God's commandments. That's, that's exactly what we've been talking about. Um, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Those last two are our posture before God, our position before God. I, I'm going to love mercy because I don't want to pronounce judgment on, uh, on someone who doesn't deserve judgment. I'm not going to think that I'm better than someone else. No, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to accept the faults of others as they're human. You know, it, it's, it's very easy to cast judgment on someone who wrongs us. Maybe, maybe someone has failed to um, pay you for something. Maybe someone has given you an insult in the past. Maybe they didn't really mean to. Maybe it is a, maybe it is a just kind of a slip, a slip of their mind, something that they didn't really intend to do. But our minds automatically, many of us, our minds automatically cast judgment on that person. We say, well, I'm never going to trust that person again, or I'm never going to be that person's friend. I, I'm never going to associate with that person again. That is not loving mercy as God has asked us to do here. 
And again, this is our posture. This, this is how we position ourselves. I am not the di- dictator of what I do. I am not the one who decides what is right for my life and what is wrong for my life. And it's not my responsibility to say, well, this person wronged me, so they're out of the picture now. No, God says to love mercy. You know, if God had cast you off the first time when you wronged him, we would all be in trouble, wouldn't we? There would, that would be a big problem. God is so merciful to us, and he asks us to love mercy as well. And that third thing that it says is to walk humbly with thy God. So again, that is our posture before the Lord. We are to walk humbly, to humble ourselves under him, because he is so great. He deserves our fear. So the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And I think this morning, if we will focus on those two things, uh, again, there's a lot of ways of looking at this. You can look at it as loving the Lord with all your heart. You can look at it as being filled with the Spirit. You can look at it as uh, what we just read in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Um, but this morning, I just want to leave you with that, that we should be, in order to have a fulfilling life, we should be truly seeking to fear God and to keep his commandments because that is what makes our life meaningful. That is what gives us purpose to our life. Everything else can go by the wayside. You may be so focused on earning your money and, and, and uh, keeping a good job and providing for your family, and that's great. That's, that's important. But all of those things come after the spiritual. The spiritual has to be our focus. And that focus is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Um, so as we, as we go into this new year, we're, we're thinking back over the Christmas holiday. We are looking forward to a new year. Let's not, let's not make our goals after what the world would make their goals. What are the, what are the world's goals? Some of the world's goals. Well, they, they, they say, I'm going to exercise more this year. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a diet this year, or, uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be stronger this year. I'm going to be more, uh, I'm going to be, have better leadership skills in my job, something like that. And again, those are all great things. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those, but our main focus going to this, into this new year should be, I want to please God with my life. I want to grow closer to my God. I'd ask you this morning, how is your, how is your prayer life now? I'm not, I'm not saying that I have uh, it all together either, but uh, I would ask you this morning, how is your prayer life? Are you spending time before the throne of God each day in prayer? Are you um, praying outside of meal times and, and your normal times of prayer? Are you spending lengthy amounts of time with your God? Or are you neglecting him? Are you saying, God, I'll give you a couple seconds before each meal and maybe a little time before bed, but the rest of the day, you don't matter. Our goal this year should be to grow in our prayer life before the Lord, to truly spend meaningful times with him in prayer. How about the word? How about reading God's word? Are we pleasing God in that area? 
Are, are we truly gleaning things from the word of God that we can apply to our life each day? That's so important because if we miss this, none of the other things matter. It's vanity. It's emptiness. There is no meaning to life if we neglect the spiritual. So I challenge you, find a time each day when you can spend lengthy amounts of time in God's word. Brother Aaron, how much time do, we, do I need to spend in the word? That's up to God to decide. And you need to be sensitive toward how much time God wants you to spend in the word. But you can never spend too much time. And I challenge you to, to grow in that area. And, and not just to read it, to read it. You know, some people read through the Bible every year, um, all, all the way through the Bible. And that's a great thing. But many times you miss what's going on in the Bible. Sometimes it's better to take a smaller amount of, of uh, Scripture and to spend a long time on that small portion of Scripture so you can, so you can really uh, glean what God has for you out of those things. Your prayer life, how much, how much time should I spend in prayer, Brother Aaron? It doesn't matter if you pray for two hours if you're just running through a list. And that, that is, if there's one thing that I could encourage you toward this new year to develop in your prayer life, it's not that you necessarily lengthen your prayer list and just rotely read off a list. It's that you spend real meaningful time talking to your God. That is so important, and that is, that is what is going to make your life fulfilling. It's going to keep you from that empty life of vanity, and it's going to bring real meaning to your life because you know your God personally. You have that close, intimate fellowship with your God. Brother Aaron, what do I talk about? What do I talk to the Lord about? Talk to him about your day. Talk to him about your struggles. Talk to him about how much you love him and praise him for who he is. That'll give you a meaningful prayer life. These are just a few things that have, they're a constant challenge to me that I need to grow in these things. And I think around Christmas time and uh, toward the new year is a perfect opportunity to step back and think, am I really spiritually where I need to be? Or am I in, a, am I in an empty cycle right now? So don't, don't put your goals toward the emptiness. Put your goals toward the spiritual fervor of God. And you will be so thankful that you did. This next year will be more meaningful, more of a blessing than you ever could have imagined because you've given God what he deserves. God is asking you a gift right now, just like, just like you would give a gift to somebody on Christmas. God is asking you to give him a gift right now. And it's the gift of your heart. It's the gift of your devotion. I ask you this morning, are you willing to give him that? Or are you going to keep focusing on the vanity and the emptiness of this world? Will you choose to please God with your life and to have that as your number one priority? Or will you choose to go on that empty cycle that will not please God? So I challenge you today, think about that. Think about what your goals are and uh, keep that in your focus as we go into this new year. Again, if you, have, if, if you are here and, and you say, Brother Aaron, I, I know what you're saying about living spiritually, and I, I know what you're trying to say about um, pleasing God with your life, but I've never experienced a relationship with God before. I've never, I've never really had a meaningful prayer. I, I, never, I don't really understand what it means to have fellowship with God. 
Today is the day to get that settled. Today is the day to figure, to, to, to step back and evaluate your life and see, have I actually put all of my trust in Jesus Christ to be my Savior? Have I accepted Jesus to live within me? Because if you don't have him living inside you, then he's not going to be able to be, you're not going to have fellowship with him. Jesus Christ wants to be your Savior, to, to fill you, to give you a meaningful life. So if that's you today, you need to trust Jesus Christ, you need to accept him, then there will be, there will be people up here that would, during the invitation time that would love to talk with you and to make sure that you have that settled this morning. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much that your life is worth living. The life that you have planned for us is so much better than we could ever make for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We don't have to live after the world's desires. But, Lord, we can truly have a meaningful life in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is living in that empty cycle of vanity, that they would choose to please you with their life this morning, Lord, that they would choose your way and, and accept your will for their lives.